0: If you see the 172 uh, thing in there, that's because I made an extra one for next week already.
1: Oh, okay, nice. Because
0: we are yet again overflowing with content. (laughs) Yeah, I'm moving this like, hey, look at this cool organizing thing Maine Ironworkers did, which is not tied to any, like, it's not urgent that we talk about it. It's just an interesting organizing story. So I've now punted that like two or three episodes in a row. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Oh, gosh. And now now that it's in the cold open, people are going to be like, I got to get that. I got to know what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> well, I, it's, fr- it's mostly just a, based on a Labor Notes article. So, uh, as always, we highly recommend folks read Labor Notes. Great source.
1: <laughs> but if you don't have time to le- read Labor Notes, there is a show that will read Labor Notes for you. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, what's the the line? We read the news Uh, so you don't have to.
1: Yeah, that's (laughs) right.
0: (laughs) Oh, I think the line is actually...
1: your favorite labor podcast my name is john
0: i'm dan and i'm lena
1: and i cut the cold open short on accident we are entirely listener (laughs) supported so thank you so much if you support us on patreon it really does go a long way hop in the discord if you're not in there already and if you're a patron without stickers yet all it takes is a message on patreon and i'll walk over to the post office and mail them to you and if you want to help us a little bit more you can leave a five-star review on apple podcasts or wherever you think it will help
2: Reading groups on Tuesday, as usual.
0: Yeah, and so we're going to start off this week with, you know, really big story, kind of capping off one of the biggest struggles in the labor movement in the U.S. this year so far, uh, because after three weeks of internal discussion and voting by UPS Teamsters across the country, the results of the ratification vote for the new UPS contract came in this week. And with 86% of the workers voting in favor, uh, which is reportedly a record for a UPS contract— on Tuesday, August 23rd, the union announced the official ratification of the new deal. Uh, their turnout was just over 58%, which I know that sounds a bit low, <laughs> uh, but it's actually pretty high for uh, a, a UPS contract vote. So a pretty high level of engagement on a relative stand and, and a, a very high level of support for the new contract. I love the
2: increased engagement, and I think we've seen that a lot more, the more rank-and-file people feel like they're actually involved in their union.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, of course, like, this is a historic victory for workers in this country, especially after decades of union stagnation. And I think, you know, to the point on the increased engagement, you know— of course, we had plenty of discussion and debate on the various ins and outs of the contract, but when you compare it for instance to the last contract fight in 2018 when, you know, uh, Jimmy Hoffa Jr. basically used obscure bylaws in the Teamsters constitution to jam a contract that a majority of UPS workers voted against, you know, down their throats, To this time, (laughs) it's night and day. It's a completely different situation where you actually have, you know, more rank and file involvement. You have a democratically elected president of the union for once. Uh, And and so, you know, this really was a completely different contract fight this time. And you had a whole year buildup by the union ahead of time, which made a a huge difference ultimately in winning all of the major gains in this deal. And so, like, by bringing in rank-and-file members to the national negotiating team, holding rallies across the country, and especially, I think, the use of the tactic of practice pickets all over the country, you know, workers were able to force UPS to give in on numerous critical demands. And, And, you know, just to recap real briefly some of the stuff that's in there, you know, Record pay increases. I think the common comparison was basically the same raise in this contract that it previously took 40 years to accumulate in previous deals, uh, ending the two-tiered 22.4 hybrid driver position that was created in the last deal, uh, eliminating forced overtime on driver's days off. Uh, It won the creation of thousands of new full-time jobs for existing part-time workers, uh, established Martin Luther King Day as a uh, paid holiday for the first time, tightened restrictions on subcontracting, and, and a whole, I mean, got one AC in all cars. You know, it's it, there's a, so much in here. And overall, the union estimates that the deal reclaims over $30 billion in workers' labor from the company's coffers, which is an incredible victory in an era of just like, you know, just rampant exploitation with the profit rates we're seeing lately.
2: Yeah, and it also sets a really great precedent in the labor movement in general, in fact, and we'll talk about it later with the UAW negotiations that are going on with them helping them with things like the practice pickets, which are extending to UAW, and also just uh, really helping bolster people who want to organize in places like Amazon.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. really hard not to immediately jump to that comparison, just because it does feel so pressing. But there are just a few things that the Teamsters have not hammered. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm.
0: I just re- I Sorry, I just saw this part. That is no longer true. Uh, oh, cool! So, yeah. breaking so news, I'm just...
1: everybody. There are no longer a few minor issues left to be hammered out in the <laughs> Teamsters UPS contract.
0: Yeah, I, I'm just gonna. <laughs> sorry, I'll, I'll just skip ahead to the. It's quote. all good. So yeah, you know, and, and in a statement following the ratification vote, uh, TDU co-chair Eugene Braswell said, quote, we showed UPS that we were ready to strike if we had to. That's how we ended a generation of givebacks under Hoffa and put our union back on the offense against UPS, end quote. And, uh, you know, one of the other things that I just want to point to, you know, as we go forward from this, because of course this isn't like, this may be sort of the end of this stage of the struggle specifically at UPS. But this is a jumping off point, you know, for, I think, a lot more struggles and victories to come in the labor movement inspired by what was won in this contract and with so many other labor struggles across the country. And just to highlight that specifically, there was a recent uh, you know, piece put out by Bloomberg Law that identified that over 58,000 workers have won NLRB elections to join unions so far this year, which is the highest in 20 years and the 662 victorious elections so far this year show that, despite how extremely stacked our system is against us, and we'll talk a little bit about that system in a, a later story, uh, you know, when workers actually stand up and fight back, we can win even in adverse conditions. And so, having like you know big victories like this, and having these inspirational you know successes by the by workers coming together, just makes it. That much more powerful of a message to bring to folks who are struggling, like Amazon workers, like FedEx workers, like so many other workers in ununionized workplaces around the country who now have a tent pole to look to to see, you know, they got this at UPS. Why can't we have this here?
1: Mm hmm. And as long as we're talking about workers who are ratifying contracts, let's talk about the University of Michigan grad student workers who we have spoken about before. Uh, Their situation is they've been locked in a battle with school administrators for months after launching a strike fighting for a living wage, better benefits, and protections against sexual harassment. The administration immediately attacked the workers for striking before their contract expired in May and tried to shut the strike down due to state laws banning such strikes. When those attacks failed to crush the workers, the school continued escalating tactics. Now, prior to the end of the spring semester, the school announced that they would issue grades in struck classes without the approval of striking grad students teaching them, essentially giving students fake grades and undercutting the entire legitimacy of their institution as an accredited you know, place of education. And then, as if there was room to get crazier from there, the school threatened just a couple weeks ago to somehow permanently replace any workers who continued the strike into the fall semester. However... These (laughs) tactics clearly come from desperation, because the school has obviously been feeling the pressure from the about 1,000 striking workers. And this week, five months after the strike began, and just one week before the start of classes, the school finally was forced to improve their contract offer to a level the bargaining team could take back to the workers. The bargaining team recommended the new three-year contract, while openly acknowledging that it doesn't contain everything they would have liked to see. Gosh. Gosh. It strikes me as uh, pretty interesting that once you are a week out from classes starting, the school's like, okay, fuck it, fine. Here's most of the stuff you (laughs) want. Well,
2: yeah, especially in the face of a bunch of new students coming in. Is that the first thing that you want new students to see is the fact that you are an intransigent administration that is against all of the people who are making the actual experience of the students come to a reality that is a good education?
1: Yeah, well, and also, like, is there any theory greater than the parents of a first-year <laughs> freshman who have just paid for that student's tuition and are mm-hmm. dissatisfied with the state of the institution?
0: Exactly. No, 100%. Like, from the, ad- like, I can just imagine the administrators thinking about getting those phone calls.
1: <laughs> phone calls, threats, mysterious mysterious things left under the handles of their car doors like
0: (laughs) well because like when you're in that very uh you know cushy position of being one of these university administrators very isolated from most uh you know unpleasantness uh these like parents who are would be legitimately outraged at like the disruption of of these services is like just out of nowhere, just to, just a to complete like terror to, to those people. So yeah, that definitely ramped up their leverage. And one of the things that I will just say, like you know, through this whole process, through this whole strike, Geo, like the the, the graduate employees organization, the union for these workers, has been like one of the most, I think, remarkably transparent unions, like that we've we've followed on this show. Constant bargaining updates, uh, and and also just like being completely open about how all the negotiations are going, the tactics from the administration and, and just continuous rank and file engagement. And, and like, I feel like I saw more like votes (laughs) during this on how they would continue, or at least, you know, the announcement of those votes publicly, which of course many unions do these internally. Uh, but I just, you know, want to highlight that they they were, you know, not, not mint like, uh, shy about the fact that there were issues in the contract that they didn't quite get to where they wanted to but to explain that you know they're they're at the peak of their leverage right now and they were able to get the majority of what they were fighting for and so that is you know enough to make this basically this is the next you know basic if if, the metaphor i think i would like to use i guess is is for like if you're climbing a mountain and it's, like, this is where you basically are putting your next, like, pick point into the mm-hmm. rock. Like, where you're actually going to be able to anchor and climb up forward from that. That's kind of what I think about, you know, these sorts of contracts where you it's been a long drag-out fight. You didn't get quite everything that you were fighting for, but, you know, you've probably achieved the most that you can at this moment. But you're going to be able to build on that in the future. Mm-hmm. And so, like, yeah, in this new contract uh, – I will say like the gains for PhD students in this are pretty ridiculous. And so, cause PhD students are about 70% of GO, and they will be getting their stipends raised to an annual wage of $36,000, which is up 50% right away from their current $24,000 stipends. And uh, by the end of the three year deal, many of the PhD students will be seeing up to a 80% increase in their wages. Now, unfortunately master's students making up, you know, about, proportionally like half as many uh you know as the uh the the doctoral students did not get quite as big of a raise but they are still getting substantial wage increases of an immediate eight percent raise then a six percent raise and then another six percent raise which averages out to a total of about 21 percent over the three-year deal
2: well, and another really important aspect of the contract is that it improves health care benefits for mm-hmm. trans workers, improved sexual harassment protections, which was a major part of what they were fighting for, and increased maternity leave to twelve weeks in in uh, in parity with faculty. The university did try to downplay the impact of the strike by claiming that the shift of PhD students to yearly rather than uh, two semesters with no summers, the way that, you know, even the faculty ten uh, exist, is actually was just, quote, in the works for a number of years, which obviously was only really won by this fight from the workers. It even like and. I, I I almost want to draw a parallel to some of the critiques of of the UPS contract when people were like, oh, the twenty two four was guaranteed to come down. It's like no, the workers fought for that. That's how they that's how they won.
1: Well, and it's just silly to say that things were in the works that only ever came out when the workers actually started to strike. I mean, we saw Starbucks do this with, like, health code violations in particular. Like, Mm -hmm. the workers would start organizing, and then Starbucks would mysteriously have a clean store and a nice working environment all of a sudden. And it's like, "Mm, who really thinks you're dink, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're like, oh, well, we were going to do this this anyway. And it's like, when?
1: Yeah, I don't believe you. Coward.
0: It just (laughs) happened... Today that yeah. just lined up. Wow, the stars aligned. Incredible coincidence that this <laughs> yeah. happened during this strike.
1: I was going to pull over before my tire blew out. Anyway, <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, I mean it's ridiculous. And 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 yeah, like they the, the the union was very open about the fact that you know this deal does prioritize raises uh, raises for workers on the flagship Ann Arbor campus, and that workers on outer campuses in Dearborn and Flint will receive lower raises than in Ann Arbor about half uh, as much but you know recognizing that the workers are not satisfied with the disparities but that this contract offer was by far the best that had been received in the 5 months and that their leverage was only likely to really decrease if it went on, if the strike went on for too much longer especially you know with the continued threats uh, by the by the school to attempt to somehow you know bring in scabs uh, or or bring in like extra adjunct faculty to teach classes, things like that. You know, they then workers decided that you know this is the right contract for now, and that they'll be able to continue the fight for these other issues. And and so, in the announcement of the deal, you know, the union team said, "quote The fight goes on, and grads are already organizing around these issues through an equity working group." End quote. Which is another thing that I love about you know the way that the union has handled this is it's not like Hey, we got the contract. We're good to go. Now you don't have to talk to any of us for the next three years. Union did their thing. It's like no, this is a this is a consistent like this is a struggle. The struggle does not end with the contract. It keeps going, and that's I you know one of the things that I've been continually impressed by Geo during this during this fight. And and you know Geo lead negotiator Evelyn Smith said in a statement from the union quote the offer on the table contains historic wins. The administration wants to take credit for these wins, but we know it wasn't their generosity that got us here, but the power of an unprecedented member-driven long-haul strike, end quote. And so, you know, following the agreement being reached, workers voted on the new deal throughout the week. And this Friday, uh, August 25th, workers announced that they had voted by a overwhelming tally of 97% to ratify the new contract
1: that number keeps coming up (laughs) that's that's how much the uh teamsters ratify or pre-approved their strike by and then it's also the amount that the uaw just recently pre-approved their strike by foreshadowing the
0: end of the episode (laughs) yeah
2: i mean i think that it really is speaking to what you mentioned earlier dan of how transparent this union has been and how democratic it has been because if they really are able to you know get this sort of, of consensus out of the entire union, it's clear that that is only achieved through that sort of, of, you know, democratic and inclusive policy.
1: Absolutely. And we also heard from Contract Committee Chair Amir Fleischman, who said in a statement, quote, What this campaign has shown is that the University of Michigan can be better. This comes at a time where higher ed is under assault, where universities are cutting whole departments and eliminating tenure, and when tuition fees are skyrocketing only as quickly as administrators' salaries. Our campaign fought against these trends and instead imagined a university that could be true to its values, play a positive role in the community, and treat its workers fairly. We're closer to that goal now than we were 10 months ago, but it remains far off. We hope the lessons from our campaign will inspire others who share our vision at this university and beyond to join the fight and stand together to create the future we deserve." End quote.
0: Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Hell yeah. So, uh following up a, a couple stories of you know, happy ratifications to, to kick off. Let's get back into the usual labor stories of pain. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: We <laughs> uh, ought to do it, Mostly be-
0: you know, because of how terrible the legal situation is for unions in this country. And specifically, we're going to be following up with workers at True Stage uh, who are fighting in Madison, Wisconsin, against a uh, really shitty employer. <laughs> Uh, We first talked about these workers back in June on episode 160. Uh, TrueStage is an insurance company that provides financial services to credit unions and other cooperative organizations. And at their location uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, there's about 450 of the workers there who are organized with OPEIU, Local 39. That's the Office and Professional Employees International Union. Uh, The the workers have been fighting attempts by the company to cut their health care benefits, to freeze pensions for new hires, and to outsource more and more work to non-union contractors. And during the strike, True Stage has pulled out, you know, plenty of underhanded tactics, trying to trick workers with misleading information about negotiations, trying to coerce workers to scab, and even fired the union's lead steward, Joe Avica, for his organizing work.
2: Classic tactic. Uh, I mean, the workers struck for two weeks, forcing the company to improve their position on several issues and ended their strike with the hopes that an acceptable contract would be worked out shortly. Unfortunately, the company has since made little movement on critical issues, and workers are now over 500 days without a contract. In July, the NLRB ruled that the company had withheld uh, vital bargaining and representation information from the union and ordered them to turn it over. Then, on Thursday, the 17th of August, workers held a membership meeting to review the company's current proposal in anticipation of a, quote, last, best, and final offer, which, as we know, is almost never the case. (laughs) But uh, over 90% had voted to reject that offer if it came without significant improvements. In a statement from the union, rank-and-file member Tracy DeGrandis said, quote, I wholeheartedly reject True Stage's current proposal. True Stage is acting like a naughty child by committing unfair labor practices and stalling at the bargaining table, end quote.
0: Tell him, Tracy, damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, honestly, that's one of those things where it's like, you know, you can throw out all the vulgarities and sometimes you'll connect pretty hard, especially, you know, like if you do it with the gravitas of somebody like a Ron Perlman. But... You know I think calling somebody a naughty child is like an uh, is an underrated way to insult someone. <laughs>
2: Yeah, definitely. Union member Liz Kidder said, quote, I would say no to the company's offer due to what I have gone through in my personal life. My family is struggling, even though I work a second job along with working full time for True Stage. It's embarrassing to say I work for a company that has made record profits, but I can barely pay my bills, end quote
1: it it is embarrassing but you are shockingly not alone in that situation that's like most american workers right yeah
0: Yeah, absolutely it's it's so many people and like unfortunately you know i don't have a new like they got the best the new offer and they're gonna vote on it it's it's more that, you know, we we checked in with these folks during their strike in June. And now, you know, the company several months later is still trying to drag this out. And now being like, well, here's our last best and final offer, which is no better than every other contract you've already rejected. And so, you know, we just want to th- show solidarity with these folks as they continue to fight for a fair contract. I also just wanted to throw a, a quick shout out there uh, because... I've been getting some decent coverage on this from a local news source in Wisconsin, which is considering the gutting of local news in this country, rarer and rarer every, every year. But the, uh, there's a reporter, JT Seskowski, who's been reporting specifically on this strike and for American news is been surprisingly pro labor, like, and, and has surprisingly honest coverage is not what I expect from, from local news anywhere in the U S especially, like I would certainly say I wouldn't expect it at my local news. So, always want to highlight when we have good labor reporting out I think
2: that Madison, Wisconsin does have at least a little bit of a fighting, you know, working class there. I mean, that's also where Iskra Books is located, so at least, you know, where there's some strong communists in that area.
1: I think Madison is kind of like the the seat of like p- what you would call like progressive or like pro labor mm. politics in Wisconsin. Also, the thing about Wisconsin and just the upper Midwest in general is that it doesn't always produce cool people, but the cool people from there are like the coolest motherfuckers you'll ever meet. <laughs> <think, so. laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah,
0: like my co hosts. That's true. Right. Hey, there we go. Hey, I'm from we're
1: from the lower upper Midwest. It's complicated.
0: <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Well, fair. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know what apparently doesn't produce the best people? Uh, Spain's aristocracy. Oh, uh, because, no. they pro- <laughs> because they <laughs> produced the CEO of medieval times. <laughs> Perico Parano- oh, Everybody's oh
1: favorite big Habsburg boy, Perico yeah. Monte. I don't know if he is actually a Habsburg. It's just fun to say. Okay.
2: I, this, I some I've gone through and I've updated all of the outro music for uh, like episodes that I hadn't done, and so I have to check out the ends of the episodes sometimes. And one that I remember very clearly is John yelling "fuck Perico Monte." <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> Well, he's a huge piece of shit, and now the NLRB is joining in the chorus of, of saying, fuck Perico Montaner. Uh, be, because, you know, obviously we, we've we covered on the show the fact that medieval times workers on both coasts at castles in, in uh, New, Zeala- New Zealand, New Zealand, <laughs> at castles in New Jersey and in California have both been, you know, battling management of the company since they successfully voted to unionize last year i mean workers at the buena park location in california have been on strike for over six months and now finally there's a new nlrb complaint against the company citing them for repeatedly breaking the law and so as reported uh, by dave Jamieson in the huffington post the nlrb issued a new complaint uh, last monday august 21st citing medieval times for illegally firing workers for organizing trying to pressure TikTok to delete the union's account and withholding funds from union workers. The complaint also takes the somewhat rare step of calling out CEO Perico Montaner directly for threatening workers who unionized by blacklisting them from raises during a meeting at the New Jersey Castle, which I believe puts him in the company of just about only Howard Schultz. Uh, Mm -hmm. that I'm I'm aware of where the the NLRB has focused quite so much on the behavior of the CEO specifically, because this complaint not only demands that Medieval Times rehire Chris Lucas, an actor and union organizer at the New Jersey Castle, which is the important part of the complaint, but the funny part of the complaint (laughs) (laughs) is that in addition to asking them to rehire Chris Lucas— it also demands that Perico Montaner write him a personal letter of apology.
1: Oh, oh yes. yes.
0: I, can, I love perfect. these. That's perfect.
1: That's not going to work on your Howard Schultz, and that's what I love about this, is if you have some, like, neoliberal, corporate-brained asshole, this won't wound him. But Perico Montaner is a feudal aristocrat <laughs> cosplaying as a capitalist. It's going to melt his fucking brain to write that letter.
0: <laughs> oh, like, yeah. even the fact that, of course, he will not write any letter. It will be some person who works sure. for it. But the fact that it, they have to send that out with his name on it, even if he never touched it you're absolutely right will absolutely it will it will enrage him? <laughs> yeah absolutely and and so you know the board's also ceasing to issue a cease and desist to get the company to stop breaking the law which again if you have to issue a cease and desist to get somebody to stop breaking the law you don't do that to regular people you only do that to companies <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah uh and, well, and, and, so, and it's
1: it's particularly notable in this situation because they are focusing not on the company generally, but specifically on the CEO. So it seems yeah. like a, if there's any time where you would just like just go ahead and enforce the law, <laughs> this would be it.
0: Yeah, yeah,
2: absolutely. Well, and I think that maybe we should take a little bit deeper look at the NLRB in general and some of the recent rulings because i'm sure that people who like to stay up on union news have seen a more kind of a big deal ruling that has come down
1: yeah my nlrb rss feed tracker has been going absolutely nutso (laughs) yeah
2: well, this week we've actually seen two different rulings that the NLRB is hyping up. One that does actually appear to be a significant change, and another that seems to be boasting over maintaining the status quo. But cool. let's start with the better ruling because, you know, we'd like to, you know, get a little bit of excitement going. So the NLRB. <laughs> Uh, Leader Jennifer Abruzzo has been speaking since her appointment about reinstating the Joyce Silk Doctrine, which would effectively bring card check back to uh, and card check national recognition of unions back to the NLRA. And in a ruling on the 25th, they took a step towards that goal, which is worth noting, failed to actually meet it at the same
0: time. Wow,
1: what an incredible move. I love to do the standing backflip of politics.
0: I have I have so many thoughts on this ruling but I'll wait till you finish. <laughs> yeah.
2: So the new rule would make it so that the case, so that in cases where it, an employer interfered with a union election to the point of it not being a fair election, which that is up to interpretation, the NLRB could issue a bargaining order, which previously would have had to have been granted by a judge. This would affect outcomes of elections like the one at Bessemer, at the Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon warehouse, where it is actually speculated that there still might be a third election to be held, but everything is still pretty uh, wrapped up in the board at this point with that one. Uh, This does stand as a possible threat to companies like Amazon, Starbucks, Tesla, and others that know that they're above the law as it stands now, but it also kind of remains to be seen in which circumstances this new rule, which is called the Semex decision, will actually be used. In the case of Semex Construction Materials Pacific LLC itself the company had 20 ULPs upheld against it between the filing of an election petition and the election itself. So the standard might be fairly high. And so this is really not exactly Joy Silk 2.0 as I think that what some might
0: want to call it that.
1: I don't know. Sometimes 2.0 versions of things are worse. I've seen that many times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. I mean, but... So, I have a bunch of thoughts on this like first off, just to preface this because i 'm going to have a bunch of critiques. This ruling unambiguously makes union busting harder. That is true, and therefore mm-hmm. that 's a good thing like this is a good ruling this improves the situation for union organizers in the u s That being said <laughs> there 's a lot of limitations to this uh, you know first off, they specifically talk about. The bargaining order will be granted uh, in the case of a ULP that would have resulted in setting the election aside. So if there were ULPs that the NLRB would rule were minor enough or whatever to not set the election aside, then, you know, so it's not like any ULP of any magnitude that's committed between the filing of the election, uh, you know, uh, petition and when it's actually held that would overturn the election. Um, other things that are in there, there's no requirement for timely bargaining. And that's somewhat related to the second, uh, the other NLRB ruling. So, you know, that thing that Starbucks is doing where there's 350 stores that have unionized and the company is just refusing to bargain with any of them, this ruling doesn't touch that. It, 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 def, it does make things like the massive illegal interference – in elections that companies like Amazon, like Starbucks, like Trader Joe's, like so many companies out there. Apple is a big one who have been just rampantly breaking labor law to interfere with elections. This should curtail that specifically, which is great. That's really good news. Uh, but there has been discussions about this being like, this is completely revolutionary. This is reintroducing card check. And it's like,
2: let's absolutely slow it down.
0: It, it, it makes unionizing, winning your union election easier, which is great. And that's good. And so, you know, if folks have been thinking about unionizing, but they've seen all the ULPs and heard some of the horror stories of the way companies have acted, well, I hope that this serves to help, you know, assuage some of those concerns. But there are still plenty of legal ways for the companies to interfere with the elections too. They can still come in and lie their asses off about the union and, get away with it they can still expend their massive resources to tell you to vote no for all sorts of spurious horseshit reasons and as long as it's not technically a ulp like they're doing illegal surveillance or something then that's totally fine and they'll still do that stuff
1: so so like in video game terms let's not start thinking that we've been given a one-hit ko weapon when really we've been granted a mild stat buff (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah i mean also i think that another thing that's worth questioning is in what circumstances the nlrb will actually rule on this because mm-hmm. if it is supposed to be related to something like the joy silk doctrine or card check will it only apply to elections where uh you the unions have filed with 50 plus 1 cards filed right uh because Currently, you actually only need a third of the workers Mm -hmm. to file cards to actually get your election. And I think that that was actually the case in Bessemer. So I don't even know if the example I gave would even be one where the NLRB would come down with that ruling because they can't guarantee that 50 plus 1% of the workers have requested representation by a union.
1: Well, it's also interesting to me because it's like, is that... Is that a precedent that needs to be set now because it's been taken out of the hands of a judge? Or is that just something that was, like, not even – like, was was this – were all of the details of when a bargaining order was appropriate just left to the, like, individual figure of the the judge? And now it's like, well, okay, since we don't have some guy in a wig deciding, we have to, like, actually develop precedent for this or –
0: it, this essentially, you know, overturns a previous several decades long precedent that just right. allowed companies massive leeway to commit ULPs. So this is like rolling back to, no, you can't do that anymore. Because, you know, as we've talked so many times, like, I, I think we've seen like two bargaining orders ever issued, like, since we started this show, and I think they were both at Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and so this, I do think in the short term, we might see more bargaining orders but i think more likely what we're going to see is that you know the you, i think you'll see more bargaining orders at small companies sure. where you see a, where they are not hiring Littler Mendelson whereas if you're hiring Littler Mendelson or Morgan Lewis or labor relations institute or one of these other fuckers like that they're ju- they're going to change their game plan and and this rule will make that game plan harder but they'll They'll adjust and they'll keep trying to do union busting in ways that will help them avoid these bargaining orders now, all of my poo-pooing, just to say that like i'm mostly pushing back on this because a lot of- sp- saw a lot of people using this as a justification to say, "See, we should support the Democrats. this is why you should vote for Biden, and that is just like first off, please develop a political memory longer than three seconds <laughs> and second off, this, the same president that crushed a rail strike less than a year ago. So well, even on labor, this guy sucks. And
1: even <laughs> with the heightened activity of the NLRB that we have been seeing and the increased amount of, of interjection that they've been willing to engage in into union politics and union struggles, it's weird to see the Democrats try to take credit for that as if they just did that out of thin air and it's not a response to the massive wave of organizing that's happening on the ground. Because if the NLRB didn't, become more active workers in this country at the level of consciousness and organization that they're building would eventually be like well we got to fuck up this institution too i guess
0: yeah Yeah, it would make some of my organizing easier Mm
2: -hmm. i think that that's one of the most important points that we need to point out is that this isn't handed to us by the Democrats. This is fought for by the workers Mm -hmm. and won by the workers. And if we want to talk about something that is actually emblematic of what the Democrats do, we can talk about that second ruling that I was mentioning earlier, where uh, the NLRB has decided that they're going to uh, create a new rule that will roll back... A, a rule that was tried to put it, be put into place in 2019 by the previous NLRB, which had four different parts originally designed to uh, allow companies to more easily object to and delay union elections. The rule would have gone into effect this September. That seems pretty significant. And this new ruling rule rolls back that 2019 ruling. But one interesting thing about that is that that rule change has already been struck down by a court of appeals judge, partially because of improper, uh, you know, time for comment and, and a couple other little technicalities. But the NLRB is taking credit for that because they are. Rolling back something that wasn't actually going to come down anyway. And if anything, this is just, I guess, another barrier to it actually being implemented, assuming there's another administration change. I mean, this is pretty emblematic of the Democrats being like, hey, look at how great we are for upholding the status quo.
1: Well, it's kind of funny to be like, hey, uh, you know that thing you don't remember that uh, didn't happen? We did that. (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> yeah no because the whole thing it, this story which it's like the actual impact to people will be like oh so the thing that could have happened but then wasn't gonna happen didn't happen got it <laughs> also so, it's like, not
2: being implemented until december of this year r- which is after the september deadline r- which also
0: r- it wasn't going to be implemented in september anyway it was just it's a bunch of nonsense. The important thing with that ruling which cuz that the way that was presented was NLRB makes new ruling to, you know, st- uh end unnecessary delays in union elections, which that sounds great. Um but it's it's NLRB cancels attempt by Trump administration to make delays worse th- attempt which was already blocked in the court system. But really what this whole you know charade yes that's a great word for it the whole charade around this ruling i think points to but is to another issue with the actual good ruling um in the Semex decision which is the limitations of the of improving conditions for workers in the united states through the nlrb Uh, because like the nlrb is itself constructed with gigantic structural limitations Around what it will allow, uh, and uh, actually, like you know, friend of the show, Nate Holdren actually wrote a really good recent piece around, on the limitations of the NLRA, uh, and of course, which of course created the NLRB, and so this ruling is really pointing to one of those incredibly big limitations, which is that any policy made by the NLRB can be undone by the NLRB, uh, and since the head of the NLRB changes every time that the two ruling class parties switch or even just if you get a like more conservative Democrat in there or something, although it's hard to imagine a much more conservative Democrat than Joe Biden, but like, the next time the Republicans are in there, they're going to try and put this same rule back into place, and then they'll probably also have procedural problems, and then the Democrats will do this again. And so it's this continuous cycle, and it doesn't change anything, and they both take credit for doing stuff.
1: Oh, man, <laughs> so- I have a crazy idea. What if... We like what if the working class set up their own labor relations board that enforced things with labor action? I don't know, Mm. just a thought.
2: Interesting. John, that might be effective, and that's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it's going to be ruled illegal pretty well, quickly. You know me, I have
1: all kinds of ideas. You don't have to use that one.
2: <laughs> well, and I mean, even to to your point, Dan, about you know how the NLRB is at the whims of whichever you know ruling class party is there. With the Semex decision, it is also at the whims of the NLRB who gets that that you know decision mm-hmm. uh, for the bargaining order. So yeah, there's a lot of room for interpretation in there. It uh, yeah, as we pointed out many of the very possible and very likely to be used caveats, they're not only going to be used by, you know, a, a future more conservative uh administration but they're going to be used even in this current conservative administration.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's not going to be pretty when uh President Mr. Beast makes uh Francisco <laughs> Mussolini the head of the NLRB. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So, like, just to sum it up, it's like, look, this—the Semex decision is good. It's gonna help make union busting harder, and so take advantage of that for sure mm-hmm. in your organizing, a hundred percent. You know, when you start seeing your boss doing shady shit, like, you can be like, "Hey, bargaining order." <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> but, right. But, but that being said, it's just it. The ruling is still yet another reminder that, as you were pointing out, John, it's like ultimately. The only real source of of, of liberation at work is going to come from our fellow workers, not yeah. from the NLRB.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime you have anything that's worth fucking having at work, another worker gave you that, whether there are people who are striking right now or people who are long since dead. Uh, yeah.
0: Exactly. And so, you know, <laughs> speaking of a case where even the Democrats cannot agree on whether to support mild, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. you know, improvements for some workers— We've got another unfortunate veto story out of Minnesota. This is the second one of these that we've had uh, this year. Just this was at, this is at the city level instead of the state level, because uh, you know this is once again, Uber and Lyft continue to wage a corporate terrorism campaign against the people of Minnesota, uh, because, and we got a, a new instance of that when a new law, which was passed by the mini, or I guess probably a city ordinance technically passed by the, the Minneapolis city council, but that has the force of law, um, that was meant to establish a minimum wage for drivers on gig platforms. Uber and Lyft was vetoed by the city's mayor after threats from both of those companies which recalls very similar recent cases of government officials bowing to their corporate masters against the public interest, uh, just like when Minnesota Governor Tim Walz vetoed an extremely similar state-level bill earlier this year and also created an exemption from a statewide uh, statewide safe staffing bill (laughs) uh, for nurses. He carved out an exemption in there for the powerful and rich Mayo Clinic. So... The new law would have required companies to pay gig drivers a minimum wage of at least $1.40 a mile and then $0.51 cents per minute after that or $5 per trip, whichever is greater. So if you have, like, a really, really short trip, you're still going to get at least $5, which still seems too way too low to me. Um So the proposed law is very similar to some that have recently been passed in Seattle. I actually think the Seattle one's been operating for a couple of years now and also in New York city, but Uber and Lyft both threatened to pull out of the city, basically to just cease operations in Minneapolis if the law passed. And so per reporting from the AP, uh, Minneapolis Mayor Jacob Frey instead vetoed the law and announced a side deal with Uber to pay the workers a minimum of $5 per ride. But this is just some handshake deal that he made with them and is not a law and has no force of law. And Lyft isn't even signed on to it at all. is just like, I don't, fuck you. We're just gonna threaten you and if you don't give us exactly what you want, fuck you. <laughs> and And so- You know, Frey has tried, the 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 mayor of Minneapolis has tried to justify this with very serious sounding technocratic language to try and pacify liberals, which is just cover for a pro-corporate anti-worker move, where he said, quote, It's clear we need more time to get this right. In the coming (laughs) weeks. We will work in partnership with all stakeholders to do our homework, deliberate, and make sure we put together an ordinance that is data-driven and clearly articulates policies based on known impacts, not speculation.
1: Did Sergey Brin write that shit? for you <laughs>
0: fucking hate like data
1: driven
2: real. nonsense
1: it's absolutely fucking incoherent it's clear we need more time to get this right fuck you the correct thing to do was on the table <laughs> i like, fucked it up
2: <laughs> i mean c- partnership with all the stakeholders are you bringing mm-hmm. in all of the fucking workers who are subject to this horrible like situation while working for uber and other sorts of you know
0: gig jobs Well, and the the whole we need more time to get this right is a classic. Neoliberal politicians love that line because it's, look, you know, we just got to make sure we don't screw this up. So we're going to get the the, the A team together and make a committee and figure it out. And while we do that, you'll forget about it. And then we'll disband the committee and not do
2: anything. Well, that's why it requires workers to not forget about it and continue to fight back.
0: Yeah, and so I mean, even, you know, the Democrats on the city council are are pretty pissed off at, at Frey. City Council member Robin Wansley called the veto, quote, an inexcusable betrayal of Minneapolis workers, end quote. Which absolutely correct, good characterization. And and she pointed out, which I think is vital to this, the 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 bullshit part of the we need more time because she pointed out that the new law was developed over the course of nearly a year with input from countless workers and policy experts and input from two cities that have already implemented very similar laws so the idea that it needed more time to be good is just bullshit it's a smoke screen
1: but dan they need to put in uh they need to work in partnership with all stakeholders and <laughs> i can think of some stakeholders you didn't mention just then yeah, especially the
2: ones with all the money who go into you know campaign contributions.
1: Oh, I was thinking of the Lord, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's right. This is this it's like that that fucking the original logo for the ILA that had the Bible on it for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. But um Yeah, so so council members in, in support of the bill have said that they do plan to try to overturn the veto but uber and lyft have spent a fortune buying political favors to oppose having to pay their workers more so i don't really know how likely overturning the veto is for, i don't look I, i'm not incredibly familiar with well, the ins and outs of legal proceedings in uh the city of minneapolis but uh, you know overriding a veto always requires, you know, more than just the same margin that voted for the law in the first place. And the ordinance passed by a very slim margin. So they would likely have to convince a, one or two of the votes that voted no to switch their vote to yes, to override the veto, which seems very unlikely, but mm-hmm. the next opportunity for them to do that will be at the September 7th Minneapolis city council meeting, which is uh, next week for folks listening to this. When this comes out, and workers will get a chance to see which of their counselors uh, support the workers of Minneapolis and which ones are bought and paid for corporate shills, uh, which is probably most of them. But if you're in Minneapolis and you're pissed off about this, I uh, highly recommend attending that city council meeting and uh, making it clear which side you're on. That's absolutely. right. absolutely. So – In our next
2: story, we're going to be talking about a a group of workers that we always try to highlight the struggles of, which is farm workers. So as we have said in a recent episode, New York has recently passed a farm worker labor rights bill, which is similar to the California law, which extends basic labor protections of the NLRA to agricultural workers who are cut out of the law due to a 1930s Use of racism. This new law has enabled United Farm Workers, the union, to organize at least five farms in upstate New York. But unfortunately, the same uh, classic racist union-busting tactics that we've seen at farms in California has emerged in New York as well. As per reporting in the Times Union, the New York Farm Bureau and its, far- and its farm owner members have engaged in a classic union-busting lying to workers that the United Farm Workers is only there to steal their money in the form of dues, and also to challenge the ability of the union to organize uh, temporary workers even in the first place. One of the main pushes for the union organizing has been you know, appalling conditions that temporary workers face consistently, Workers at uh, Porpiglia Farms are made to live in in a converted garage space, which the owner defended as, quote, government-approved housing, end quote.
0: Uh, Which is so vague.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Photos of the space provided to the Times Union show cement floors and uninsulated cement block walls. Uh, yeah, not the best conditions for people who are producing the food that we eat.
1: Not the best conditions for fucking anybody. A converted garage is a fancy jail cell. Let's be clear about what that is.
0: Yeah, because like I, I, you know, I was when I was reading the notes for this, I was looking at some of the pictures that the Times Union posted that they'd been, you know, sent by by organizers in the UFW, and like, look, I have seen worse, you know, barracks style housing used on farms before, uh, you know. But in, we're not in racing stories. to the bottom here, folks. Yeah, in stories that we've covered, you know, I'm I'm thinking especially of some of the stories we covered, especially you know in 2021, you know, at the the worst in the worst some of the worst stages of COVID, when farm workers were were like jammed into these incredibly cramped, like barrack style housing. And it was just a, a death trap. This is a step above that, but I don't want to live in a converted fucking garage. And, and again, these are people who have come here specifically to work on the farm to produce profits for the farm farm owner. I mean, they're there to, you know, be able to subsist, but that's the only reason the farm owners have the farm in the first place and have any money is because of the work that these workers are doing, many of them traveling from another country to do so. And yet they're when they're pointed out that, okay, so these folks are coming here and producing all this wealth for you and you're like, hey, come live in this garage that I put a couple couches in. Like Yeah. It's awful. That's fucked. Yeah.
2: I mean, the union is also one of the only protections against deportation because temporary farm workers on H-2A visas, uh, if they lose their jobs, they can basically be forced out of the country. Farm owners claim that allowing these workers to unionize would violate federal law, which is not true. Correct. Uh, I mean, H-2A workers have been able to unionize in other states for decades. Over 10,000 temporary visas have been issued for workers in New York, so this is a critical issue for workers who who are out there actually producing the food that people eat. New York has only adopted the 40-hour workweek law for agricultural workers, but even this bare minimum step came with a massive theft of workers' money when Governor,
0: Hol- when
2: Governor Hochul agreed to use taxpayer money to cover the new overtime
0: costs that should actually be paid by farm owners. The, the Democrats love this shit and I hate it because what it is is it's like we're good because they do a good thing which is we're putting in a law that says agricultural workers have the same protection of the 40-hour work week which of course does not mean that you can only work 40 hours but that if they're going to force you to work more than 40 hours they have to pay you overtime that's really what it what the 40-hour work week law is but that is good extending that to, to agricultural workers when they previously had no overtime protections whatsoever that's good the problem is The overtime pay is supposed to come from the bosses because the profits they make are stolen from workers, and so if they're going to work you longer than 40 hours, they have to pay you more, and that money is supposed to come out of their pocket. But instead, the Democrats were like, well, we are going to do a good thing and give the workers this overtime protection. But we are afraid of the farm owners who we want to to keep giving us money. And so we won't make them pay for the overtime. We'll take it out of taxpayers' money. And then we can later use that to blame the migrant workers and just do a xenophobia and a racism. And then people will forget that we did this.
1: Yeah, well, look, the worst crime that can possibly happen is if a wealthy person... Particularly a business owner Loses a bunch of money Right That's why when you do A good thing By fucking them up You have to pay them for it Like it was good When we bombed The Ford plants In Nazi Germany And then We had to pay The Ford company Obviously
2: (laughs) I think that another Really important thing Is that this uh, Subsidization Of exploitation Is going to lead To just the same Amount of overwork That these workers Face Mm -hmm. in the first place I mean sure Mm -hmm. It's good that They're being paid Paid more for the time that they work over forty hours, but really what they should be doing is they should be paid more in the first place, and there should be more workers so that workers don't have to work over forty
0: hours to make a fucking living.
1: Whoa, 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 a cohesive solution? (sighs) the hell <laughs>
0: <laughs> well yeah and i mean again the whole idea behind overprime protections in the first place from a again from a liberal social democratic perspective sure. was well you know these 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 factory owners keep making their workers work like 80 hours a week and then they keep dying and that's not very efficient so we really want them to stick to this eight hour day thing but the fa- the factory owners simply will not do it <laughs> so what can we do could we pass a law that makes them do that sure but that would in Im- infringe on their property rights, and those are the most important thing that was ever created by God, so we can't do that. <laughs> what, what can we use instead to encourage behavior? Price incentives. The mm. only thing that ever changes anyone's behavior ever, price incentives. So we'll pass this law that makes the price of labor higher after 40 hours, and the boss won't want to pay that. So they'll hire more people, and then the workers won't be overworked, and we will have solved the problem, and that's why no one in America is overworked today. Oh, wait. Yeah,
2: obviously not the way that it has actually come down. But even, I mean, as we're saying this, I mean, this handout is not pacified reactionary farm owners. On August 21st, Anthony and Joseph Porpiglia, owners of Porpiglia Farms, Uh, forced their way into a United Farm Workers organizing meeting being held in the workers' quarters alongside two other goons they brought with them. They screamed at workers for organizing, demanding to know who invited UFW representatives to the farm, and chased off several of the Mexican and Jamaican workers and threatened the United Farm Worker organizer if she did not leave the farm immediately. Damn. Like, like, yeah. They busted into someone's house. So, like... uh, are there no tenants' rights? Yeah, well, is
1: it too spicy to say Kulak
0: behavior? <laughs> no, I mean, it's extremely literally. Uh, I mean, this is, yeah, about it. it. The only other thing would be, like, if they passed a new law that said, like, you have to pay the workers overtime, and so they burned down their own mm-hmm. apple farm. Like, that, that would be the only way they could more uh, emphasize that. But, yeah, no, I mean, this is just, unfortunately this is extremely classic behavior for farm owners in the United States. This is this sort of thing, this sort of like physical intimidation, like violently breaking up, organizing meetings. Like this is the sort of stuff, you know, the UFW was born out of, was fighting against this sort of stuff in California. And unfortunately it's not confined to California. We have, and I got to say though, it's, Saying the name Porpiglia and then talking about a violent assault is is weird because Porpiglia is such a funny name to say. <laughs> yeah,
1: once in a while you get those, like, Scott the Googly Elmo. <laughs>
0: Classic. <laughs> yeah, and so, like, you know, the union has, of course, condemned the attack on the workers, putting out a, a, a statement, uh, you know, that not only can you not interfere with the right to workers broadly that the law specifically gives them the right to organize in company housing so because of course this is another problem with you know this giving the the farm owner oversight over the housing you should absolutely make them pay for it but you shouldn't put them in charge of it because then they just do this shit they just barge in they're like well this is my building i own it so i can just go wherever i want and abuse everybody who's there
1: oh great now we've advanced to feudal lord behavior (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, yes, very much so. I mean, that's that, that's really where a lot of this comes from. And so, like, you know, the union specifically pointed out that this is not new behavior from these farm owners. They they pointed out that they have a long history of racist behavior towards the workers at their farm, and they pointed to a t- a consent decree from back in two thousand six. They got a consent decree for racist behavior during the Bush administration. Damn. Do you know how abusive you have to be for that to have happened? Like, that is wild that they were consistently being so abusive to specifically black Jamaican workers that even the the, the Bush administration's federal government was like, all right, you got to cool it. <laughs> like, it's wild. And so, you know, of course, the UFWs filed UOP charges against the farm owners for the raid. Uh, You know, I don't think it will actually, you know, I know it won't be covered under the Semex decision because while, you know, these workers have state rights to organize, they are still not covered under the NLRA, uh, which is one of the things the PRO Act would have changed that the Democrats had no real intentions of passing. But so, you know, these workers, even with these ULPs, it's still not going to like automatically give them a free union election. And so in a statement, UFW Secretary Treasurer Armando Elenis said, quote, The boss's aggressive and threatening effort to limit workers from speaking with union organizers only underscores what we believe to be deeply unjust, exploitative, and abusive status quo at Porpiglia Farms. The Porpiglia brothers should be ashamed of themselves for using these intimidation tactics to silence their workers from speaking with their elected union representatives for trying to crush their workers' rights to a union, for physically threatening and intimidating a union organizer, and above all, for seeking to profit off the misery and fear of their fellow human beings. The Porpiglia brothers need to immediately cease these illegal activities and negotiate a fair union contract with the UFW, end quote.
1: Hell yeah. Absolutely. And also, I mean, more than that, we just need to get farm and agricultural workers and every other worker covered under the same kind of labor protections
0: as everybody well, yeah, else. And and all every t- I feel like every time we talk about the struggles of farm workers on this show it's just so it's this is one of those things farm work to me that I'm like I feel like even to normy libs you could make the case that it's like why do we why aren't all our farms co-ops like why why are why is there an overseer in farming? Like you're going to watch those videos of like farm workers, just like doing just absolutely unbelievable labor. And you're going to tell me those are the people that should not be in charge of running it. And it should be, these guys who sound like they're villains from a GTA game. Well, and it's also like you
1: don't even have the flimsy-ass excuse to hide behind that you have with like pilots and rail workers where it's like, oh, you know, they're too essential to the national infrastructure, whatever. It's like if one farm goes on strike and that farm doesn't produce blueberries, no, there's no threat to national anything. <laughs> so it becomes pretty obvious that it's just racism. I mean, when you look at the yeah. demographics of farm workers and you look at the way that they're treated legally and the pattern over the last like 100 plus years it's race it's just Mm -hmm. (laughs) right there's literally nothing else going on there but racism
0: (laughs) yeah exactly because like you have the classism is built in Mm -hmm. but it's that distinction why are the domestic workers why are the agricultural workers treated so much less and it's it's just the racism yeah but um every single time yeah so you know we've talked a lot about academic unions on this show And sometimes you think when there's a successful strike at a university, the administrators might finally realize, you know, all that bullshit we did during the strike, maybe that was a bad idea. Maybe we should change our approach. Maybe we should try working with the workers. And maybe that'll actually make everything run smoother. Unfortunately, the folks at the new school have not done that. (laughs) Uh, Because, you know, last year we talked about the longest strike by adjunct faculty in U.S. history at the new school in New York City. That struggle culminated with the occupation of multiple buildings on campus by students in solidarity with their teachers, which forced the administrators to relent and agree to the union's core needs in a new contract. And so now student workers at the new school are fighting for a union of their own, and unfortunately, school administrators are back to their old union-busting ways. So the new Student Workers Union, or new SWU, <laughs> as they have stylized it, uh, is made up of 900 student workers, largely undergraduate, but in many different roles, uh, including health workers, tutors, maintenance workers, and other critical positions at the school. And the student workers who filed for an NLRB election on August 7th say that they would be the first wall-to-wall graduate and undergraduate student union in the U.S. So basically trying to take all of the student workers who work for the school on campus, whether it's you know, in a tutor role or an RA or a TA or a, an adjunct role or a maintenance worker, that all of those student workers will be in the same union affiliating with the, you know, the same local, ACT UAW Local 7902, which the uh, new school's academic workers are already in. And so these workers had started organizing their union inspired by that strike that happened late last year. Unfortunately, the new school administrators uh, in not turning over a new leaf are once again fighting uh, against their own workers. In this case, they are fighting to even deny these workers the right to unionize at all. Uh, and in a statement released by the union, and I I always like the zesty language we get from student worker unions, <laughs> of where the the workers put out this statement on Tuesday, August twenty second, referring to the union the university's quote billionaire capitalist trustees end quote which is very true, but you very very rarely hear it phrased that way, but calling them out for previously claiming in written, published statements that they supported the rights of their student workers and explicitly acknowledging them as employees. And they were called out for that behavior because the administration has completely reversed that position. They've submitted their official opposition to the union, to the NLRB, claiming that the student workers are not employees and do not deserve a union. They're really running backwards on this one, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, it's just like, damn, we had this union, and we, we, we tried to fight them, and we lost— and so rather than being like, "Hmm, maybe we should work with the union and things will go smoother. They're just like, what if we prevented a union in the first place? That what if,
2: what if we did the big fight for the capitalist <laughs> class and, you know, tried to
0: deny the rights of, you know, all student workers. Right. And in addition to trying to deny the concept of student worker unionizing, and I think there's these additional levels because they recognize that argument's not going to fly. Um, they are a, they're like, basically like, well, okay, well, if you don't believe that one, <laughs> I got another one for you. Uh, f- anyone who's on federal work study, they're, they're not a worker uh, because of reasons. Uh, <laughs> and so basically they're like, all right, well, if you make us have to acknowledge that, s- that most of the workers are workers, well, don't make us let the, f- the work study people unionize. <laughs> and in addition to that, they've got another hedge where they're like, well, Okay, even if you allow the union to exist, they they can't be in the same bargaining unit as other workers represented by Local 7902, because that would be hard.
1: Okay, (laughs) if you're going to let them unionize, they all have to unionize individually without any help from each other. Right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of goofy bullshit. And so... In response, the union has decried these attempts to stop their organizing, saying, quote, We view this as an egregious attempt by the new school to silence us, and a violation of our rights to freedom of association, freedom of speech, and freedom to engage in collective bargaining over the terms of our employment. The university's leadership and board of trustees will not get away with their bad-faith assertions intended to delay our election and ultimately deny us our federal right to form a union, end quote.
1: Hell Yeah. I love those kind of affirmative statements. They're like, they will not get away with it. It's not like they can try or anything like, you know, the confidence. Yeah.
0: No, it's good confidence. I love it. And, and, And yeah, so the university has specifically called on administrators to withdraw their objection to the union petition. And they ended their statement threatening a strike for recognition if necessary, saying, quote, we do the work to keep this school running. Will we be forced to demonstrate the value of our work by withholding it?
2: I love the energy of this union. First, mm-hmm. calling them what, what they are, billionaire capitalist trustees, and then being like, what if we flex our strike rights?
1: Yeah, it's like, okay, lecture's over. If you still don't understand the material, we can do some lab time. That's right, <laughs> that's
0: right. <laughs> yeah, so, no, lo- absolutely love that. And I just love that they're like, oh, we're not employees? Okay, damn, I guess our work's not important. Well, and you won't mind if it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, it's great. So, you know, solidarity with these workers. I mean, hopefully the NLRB will very quickly shut down the idea that they're 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 students, not employees. The same bullshit the NCAA has been doing with student athletes for decades. But anyways, solidarity with the new SWU uh really (laughs) fucked up that the administration did not learn their lesson from the adjunct strike. I have a feeling they won't. Yeah.
1: Well, speaking of an industry we haven't talked about all that often on the show, we're going to talk about the Brooklyn Alamo Draft House, which is unionizing with the UAW. And the movie theater industry uh, has taken quite a few hits during the course of COVID, but now that everything is open again, despite that being a questionable decision, companies mm-hmm. are once again raking in enormous profits for blockbusters. You may have heard of uh, Boppenharby the famous movie phenomenon. (laughs) That's right. Uh, but this windfall has not made its way to the workers actually making it all go. And now some of them are fighting back. So on Monday, August the 21st, we saw workers at the Brooklyn Alamo draft house file for an NLRB election to join UAW local 2179. This is the second location to unionize after a fight by workers to join the IWW at a Texas Alamo location last year. And I got to say, it makes a lot more sense to have an Alamo draft house in Texas. Uh, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I support the workers at both locations, but I got to say, on the corporate level, that one makes more sense. Um, <laughs> so, a supermajority of the theater's 190 employees, this is over 75%, signed cards in favor of the union, which bodes very well for their eventual election victory. The bargaining unit includes ushers, wait staff, box office workers, line cooks, and bartenders. In a press release issued on Monday, the workers pointed out that despite being the company's most profitable location... They have been repeatedly denied raises while the company claims they can't afford them. Workers have also been asking for more staff to cut down on overwork and for corporate to replace old or faulty equipment with no success. So now the workers are organized to fight back and make the changes they need in the workplace. Yeah, which rocks. I mean, those are just precisely the same complaints we hear from every set of workers. Well, The, the equipment's old. Um, we, we don't get raises. Uh, there's not enough of us. Like. <laughs>
0: Well, and I mean, parallel the equipment thing to every Starbucks, like the mm-hmm. Ithaca, fo- you know, the Ithaca folks, the, the the roastery in New York City that had the black mold that only got taken care of when they made it an issue in the union drive. Like this is constant, like bosses. This is something that I think is important for people to understand, like even as customers, you know, even as one of the most loathsome and horrible roles we can take on as people that of the customer like even in that persona this is something you should care about because bosses generally in capitalist enterprises will happily serve you completely toxic food and and beverage as long as they can it's cheaper for them to do so Mm -hmm. every single time
1: and, uh, you know, if, no matter how much money they make off of that, they're not going to fucking give you any of it. Mm-hmm. So in the press release, uh, workers at the Brooklyn Alamo pointed to how s- during opening weekend for Barbie and Oppenheimer, colloquially known as <laughs> Oppen Oppenheimer, the company bragged That's about right. serving over 300,000 customers at its 40 locations. damn. That's like three rainforest cafes. <laughs> Meanwhile, all workers got for this massive, sur- massive surge in labor was some Panera sandwiches and a thank you email. One, okay, you make better food than Panera at yes. the fucking location.
0: Yes. What the fuck? <laughs> uh, that so was close- one of my biggest problems with this when <laughs> I read it. I was like, first off, like Panera is just about the worst chain you can possibly give somebody as a thank you. Mm-hmm. It is the least exciting, (laughs) like, fast food type thing to give people. I can't think of anything worse. Subway, maybe? It was the only thing that I can think of that would be, like, less exciting is stuff that isn't, like, that broad of a chain. It's like, oh, we got you stuff from Obon Pen, the airport's, like, three day old sandwich. We just
1: got you some. Einstein Bros bagels that were about to go out Or something <laughs> um, But uh, closing their press release the workers said Quote the workers of Alamo Drafthouse downtown Brooklyn Demand that the company respect its Exploited workforce and share the profits Reaped year round with those who sacrifice Their bodies minds and hearts To create those profits end quote Absolutely fucking nailed it, guys. So well said. You deserve so much more than Panera Bread. I mean, you deserve Mm -hmm. your raises. You deserve proper staffing. You deserve uh, safe working conditions. And more than that, you deserve like P.F. Chang's or something. I mean, like you deserve like
0: (laughs) (laughs) some kind of local steakhouse. Well, you're in New York, (laughs) you could at least spring for like Shake Shack or something. Yeah. Come on. Come on. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's going to be a new tagline for the podcast. You deserve better than Panera Bread. I <laughs> mean, and we mean, we mean
1: that in two dimensions, one which is really important and one which is fun to say, let's be clear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's right. But, you know, some workers who also deserve a hell of a lot more than they're getting uh, is every worker. But specifically, you know, we want to point out the plight of auto workers because, of course, we've been eagerly anticipating as we approach the deadline for the contracts between the UAW and the big three U.S. automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, which I will once again remind people used to be Chrysler, uh, and for all the old people like me. Uh, <laughs> and so this this showdown is, is coming, you know, less than three weeks away from when we're recording this today on September 14th. And the union took a major step this weekend towards a potential strike at any or all three of them. Uh, On Friday, uh, August 25th, the union announced the results of their strike authorization vote with a whopping, as John mentioned earlier in the show, 97% in favor of striking if a deal is not reached by the 14th. And as John mentioned, notably, this is the exact same level of near unanimity as the Teamsters strike authorization vote. And specifically, the workers at Ford seem like extra pissed off because Ford workers voted 99% 99% in favor of a strike, which is, I think, the highest strike authorization I've seen at like a, a place that's large enough that you're basically almost certainly not going to get exactly 100.
1: Well, you, you, you know what Ford stands for, right? Fix our contract, Tony.
0: <laughs> that's right. That, I'm like, oh, that's, yeah, that spells. Right? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I
2: mean, on top of the Ford issue, I mean, Stellantis has been incredibly intransigent. When watching oh, some yeah. of their, uh, you know, because Sean and Fain has been continually doing like, uh, you know, meetings, like virtual meetings with the with the UAW members. Uh, the members will not hesitate to point out how intransigent, especially Stellantis is So if mm-hmm. anyone is going to avoid a strike at all it seems like it's only GM and I still don't <laughs> even have confidence in them.
0: Yeah I mean we could see strikes at any or all three and and you know speaking of Sean Fane you know he said in a statement following the authorization results saying quote 97% of you voted to authorize a strike because you know that we do have the power that we are united and we're not afraid and we're going to win. The big three's race to the bottom ends on September 14th end quote. Hell yeah. And so, you know, in another parallel with the recent fight by the Teamsters at UPS, UAW locals in Michigan and Kentucky this past week held practice pickets attended by Fain to rally the workers and build unity ahead of a potential strike, which I think is great because I think the practice pickets specifically were one of the, like, I think most effective and coolest uh, tactics that the Teamsters used, you know, in the run-up to forcing UPS to give them back $30 billion of their stolen labor. And so I think it's really encouraging to see these effective tactics like spreading around the the movement. And I think one of the reasons why it's incredibly
2: effective is how public it is because Mm -hmm. it looks like a strike, but it also is mostly showing the unity of the membership, which is a credible threat. So on top of it being a credible threat, it's easily reported on by the media, which is a Mm -hmm. great public relations tactic to let the public know that these workers are ready to fight for something better.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it also gives members of the public a place to show their support physically because when you, they're announced in advance, folks can show up. And that just, I think, reinforces the unity because workers then see, oh, hey, the people in the community are behind us. We, if we have to strike, you know, folks will be there standing with us. And so it's, uh, I, it, that, I, there's so many aspects of it that I think make it a really effective tactic. And I think it's really good to see that. And I, I think we'll only be seeing you know, more and more of those practice pickets as September 14th approaches. But just to real quick summarize, you know, some of these key issues, you know, we've discussed the background to these negotiations in our shop floor discussion, which we put out earlier this month. Definitely encourage folks to check that out for more of the the deep dive background to these negotiations. But largely what this – the contract that, you know, the workers are fighting for is to address – You know, decades of giveaways in concessionary contracts, especially since the 2008 bailout. The workers are demanding a 46% wage increase to catch back up from, you know, how far their wages have fallen behind. Hell yeah. The return of COLA to take the bite out of inflation, which only continues to be a problem, and to keep low raises in the future from really actually being pay cuts. Absolutely. Ending the rampant abuse of temp workers on horrific schedules, ending the two or sometimes more than two tiers uh, uh, wage system, and uh, raising conditions at EV plants to be the same as other auto plants, A 32 hour work week, which has been a really awesome proposal and that's garnered a lot of attention, which is great, and vitally, the right to strike over plant closures.
2: I'm so excited for the 32-hour t- work week to seriously be a union demand from a union with real power, because we always say that those sort of things don't come without real struggle, and real struggle happens with, organized, with the organized working class, and this seems like a really great first step towards actually getting that 42069 that we've been talking about for
0: so long. <laughs> that's true. Well, that's right, and you know, the UAW is really kind of the perfect union to be really raising this demand right now because it's actually a demand they made in the past uh, a long time ago (laughs) in the past back in the 60s uh you know in the days when walter ruther was head of the uaw and you know they're kind of embracing this sort of like social keynesianism sort of philosophy of, of of like the way that you boost the capitalist market is by improving conditions for the workers which, of course, they abandoned with neoliberalism. But during that period, Ruther, one of the things, the, the, one of the last like, big pushes they made was a push for a 32 hour work week. And by now, with decades of automation since then, I mean, a 32 hour work week should be a moderate demand. It's, of course, not. It's considered radical and extremist. It's got people like Jim Cramer out there trying to call Sean Fain a communist and saying it was Marx and Engels and Sean Fein <laughs> <laughs> and all this other goofy bullshit. Well, he but should like, know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, former Spart. Uh, <laughs> Spartus, I love Kramer. that. That quote is um, so funny. But uh, no, I mean, it, it's the sort of thing that with the productivity levels of modern, uh, you know, uh, productive forces, we should be, what was the Buckminster Fuller prediction? I think that we'd be at like 15 hour work week by now. Honestly, especially in like manufacturing, there's no reason. It Mm -hmm. shouldn't be that way. Uh, But, of course, the bosses will portray it as ridiculous. But even despite their attempts to do that, we've already seen some signs that the pressure is working. Because this week, Ultium, which has been a very controversial uh, company that we've talked about previously on the show for their horrific working conditions, they're a battery production plant that was built in cooperation between GM and LG. So here's a case... (laughs) where uh, GM is getting into the, the story here for the first time. Uh, and they actually, they have had such horrible wages. Uh, they were starting at $16.50 an hour that it actually became so much pressure that GM has already caved and reopened their existing contract with the UAW and agreed to raise uh, wages at the Ultium plant by about 25%, 3 to $4 an hour for all their employees. And making making it so that the lowest starting wage at the plant is twenty dollars an hour instead of sixteen fifty now that 's not where it should be that 's not catching up to the u a w master agreement, but the fact that they won this as an interim raise in the middle of an existing contract, I think is all like that 's a great sign because that takes a lot of pressure absolutely to, to get something like that to happen and so Uh, And in another major similarity, unfortunately, to the UPS struggle, the corporate media is already running cover for the automakers by fear-mongering about the cost of a potential strike. Always got to bring out the what, but at what cost? And as Sarah Lazar reported for Workday magazine, the business press is specifically throwing around the the idea that the strike would, quote, cost $5 billion in losses to the economy, end quote. Not the economy.
1: (laughs) And also, hold on. What economy? Like what <laughs> what are you talking about? Literally like just is is it just a bunch of rich people's bank accounts? Or do you mean like the GDP? Or are you talking about
0: stock prices? What what the fuck do you mean? Also well, right, it's came like, up
2: with this number.
0: Well, that's the thing, because you know, when you think about it, you're like, Oh, it's gonna cost five billion to the economy, that's a lot of money. And then you think about it, you're like, Well, the defense budget's a trillion dollars. Right. So is five billion really a lot? And then you think about it again and you're like, wait, if if they do a strike at the car makers, I don't think the cost of eggs is going to go up. So what the fuck, who's who's paying that cost? And it turns out that 5 billion number was sourced from a think tank funded entirely by the auto industry, wow. the Anderson Economic Group. Mm.
1: Damn. When it ain't the CIA, it's the fucking car <laughs> manufacturers.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and so, again, this is one of these classic fear-mongering tactics where, first off, even if the $5 billion number was true, you know who that harm is going to? The bosses who stole all that money from the workers in the first place. So that's not anything the working class should ever be worried or concerned about. Yeah, well, and also it's like
1: kind of commonly understood by any serious economist that a good way to get the economy going is to give more people more money so they spend mm-hmm. more money. <laughs> Which is not what rich people do, by the way. Rich people don't... No, they don't like Keynesianism. No. <laughs> uh, but... Who wants to be a Milton John Keynes anyway? <laughs> is that
0: his name yeah. right? So, I think, it, I think it might be Keynes, but I don't care, because that's not... Like, he's... Look, he's British, and that's not how it's, you pronounce it in America. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, but importantly, well, you know, Fain has, of course, come out and pointed out that while the UAW is not out here, like, we're going to strike no matter what, no matter what offer you give us. It's like, they don't want to strike, but they need demands. That will make workers whole because the situation that workers are facing right now is just not acceptable. It it, it they're they're horrific. I, you know, again, I I highly recommend folks listen to that shop floor discussion. But just for example, there are temps who have worked for an entire year at a seven day, twelve hour a day work pace with in twenty twenty. Well, I guess twenty twenty two, but like. It, it, today. It's it's absolutely ridiculous. And so Fain said in a statement, quote, This is our time to take back what we are owed. Working together with the companies doesn't work for us. The only way the working class advances is if we stand together. The only way we're ever gonna have a better quality of life for ourselves and our families is if we fight for it. End quote. Yeah, absolutely. Get your altimeter checked, Sean. <laughs> Yeah, oh, wow, that's a a deep cut for folks who have not listened to AFL-CIA Part (laughs) (laughs) 2.
2: Well, while we're uh, making light of a serious situation, let's uh, make light of some images that uh, we found on the internet.
1: Hell yeah, I love to shine a light on the memes of the day. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Let's start with the UAW themselves. Yeah, going right from that story. Uh, I just like this. So the UAWD, Unite All Workers for Democracy, the Reform Caucus from the UAW, who who helped uh, get back the election of Sean Fain, uh, put out a a a kind of classic uh, Captain Planet format meme, but one that is really, I think, reflective of what's been so inspiring this summer. And so it's, it's the classic, uh, you know, Captain Planet meme where you've got the buy our powers combined and you've got the UAW, the Writers Guild, SEIU, the Teamsters, and SAG-AFTRA, and it's with your powers combined, I am going to kick some corporate ass. That's <laughs> right. Which that's already pretty good, but I also really appreciated their caption because I think it it clarifies you know the incredibly skewed portrayal that we see worker fight back in the media, which is they only call it class war when you fight back. <laughs>
2: And that is a line that is underutilized. And I am so glad that we're seeing, you know, unions in unionists in power actually saying shit like that, because so long there has been a lack of a fighting spirit. And that line right there, it comes with a fighting
0: spirit
1: well speaking of lines with fighting spirits our next meme (laughs) (laughs) opens with the bold statement
0: (laughs) having seen the meme I love this uh, (laughs) this segue you're using because I love to know which line in this you're talking about
1: (laughs) the meme (laughs) opens with the bold statement all my life I've been a carpenter but the enter is silent and then there's a photo of a (laughs) carp holding a little Stanley handsaw and wearing a bump cap and then someone shared it on Tumblr and it says it's not wearing appropriate PPE and then OSHA official (laughs) reblogs it and says I'm not entirely sure why the employer even allowed a fish onto the job site in the first place very funny OSHA what are you going to (laughs) do find them a (laughs) hundred (laughs) dollars
0: yeah well I also love that it's phrased it's not phrased I can't believe they let a fish onto the job site it's appropriately phrased for OSHA I'm not sure why they did that (laughs) (laughs) that seems bad not I'm going to do anything about this. It's just this whole situation seems very good, not good. <laughs> like, they're very concerned. They're not going to do anything, but they're very concerned. <laughs> <laughs>
2: then our next one, we have a cats in hard hats meme. With This is a cat in a little like kennel with its orange bump cap. And in the top caption on this, it says, my face after being asked to do my job that I applied for and accepted. And then at the bottom, it says, my answer is no.
0: i feel like this is a one of the more relatable ones of these because i will say there are very few things at my job that annoy me as much as when people come up and ask me to do the thing i was hired to do that's right that's right (laughs)
1: look i'm trying to look at facebook
0: here (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying to write notes for my podcast about communist labor organizing leave me alone yeah (laughs)
2: it's very important that i reply to the these uh (laughs) posts that people made
0: exactly (laughs) So, going from a cats and hard hats meme to just a cat meme, <laughs> I just really like this one. I, this one I really don't think is new. I think this is a pretty old meme, but I saw it recently and I thought, in the uh, context of the recent victory at UPS, <laughs> it, it was an interesting contrast. Where so, I, I know this is an Amazon delivery, but because <laughs> we've had memes about you know like UPS drivers showing up to deliver stuff in gold chains, but this one is a a Amazon delivery one where it's a picture of like a cat on a front porch next to an Amazon package that's been dropped off. And then it's then below it, it says delivered today. It was handed directly to a receptionist or someone at the front desk. <laughs> that cat's going to take care <laughs> of that package just fine. <laughs> Delivery person's that's got right. no worries. You know, I, I really appreciate that. Apparently folks are are really branching out in their search for, for new receptionists. <laughs>
2: Yeah, absolutely. And then this last one is an ode to anyone who has experienced unpleasant heat. In this recent summer, uh, which I think is a lot
0: of fucking people,
2: including myself,
0: and, I, well, and especially so, y'all in the Midwest last week with that heat dome was, it was especially atrocious. It was gross right up until yeah. like yesterday. Yeah,
2: I I don't have AC in my house, and it got up to eighty five in my house one day. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it was it was only one day, so you know it's not you know like what we were talking about in California, but still it was pretty fucking unbearable. It was it was awful. But uh, I need to know. No, this is gonna be this is a question that has been going on that i'm afraid to ask where is what is this from i don't
1: know so, this is adam driver in some fucking movie
0: uh it's from oh, what's the name of the movie see we don't even know see oh, i bet there's so no. many people who don't know this so this is the, marriage uh, story marriage, it's from it's from marriage story yeah so okay i couldn't remember if the movie was called marriage story or divorce story <laughs> oh okay well this is the
2: every day i wake up and this is every day i wake up and it's too hot and then he
0: hits the wall and is crying
1: yeah (laughs) feel that
0: yeah i know that that's one of those ones where if you wake up and you're, you're just like already sweating you're just like already seriously yeah i have to get out of bed fuck
2: this and then you know what going outside and you're like oh my god it actually is worse out here (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) unbelievable yet another reason we need an actual heat standard from an actual worker protection agency osha yeah absolutely
2: (laughs) and uh you know you should demand that also with your fellow workers uh beyond that We're ending the episode for right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's the meme review, folks, and we're out of (laughs) here. That's
2: right. And if you'd like to support us as an entirely listener-supported show, you can do that at patreon.com slash workstoppage. It's the only way that we get any funding for doing this. You can check out our new series on Unions and the Mob, and this time on the ILA. We've got all sorts of amazing back content, whether it be the shop floor discussion on the UAW or the reference to the... AFL-CIA episodes that we talked about. Uh, and then also, jump in the Discord and come hang out with us. There's the reading group on Tuesdays. Writers for Review somewhere. Literally anywhere. Follow us on all the places. The links are at workstoppagepod.com. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce, Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, labor peace is not in our interest and solidarity forever.
1: Solidarity.
0: Solidarity, everybody. Thank you.